and my name is Jamie. And um, let's con let's continue our worship. Okay, uh, let's pray. <laughs> for sure, let's pray. Uh, Lord, we thank you for your grace and your mercy and your peace. And we ask that you help us to hear your truth today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, uh, today's Old Testament reading comes from the first chapter of Lamentations. Oh boy, Lamentations. <laughs> Said no one. Uh, I was going to skip it. I'm not going to lie. I was going to skip it and just do the gospel reading. Um, but then it kind of bothered me, you know, and I thought, how? I haven't heard any uh, sermons just preached on Lamentations, you know, like, I mean, maybe on a Good Friday service, you know, but, um, and maybe, you know, a lot of people quote from chapter three, the hope chapter, where God's mercies are new every morning. Like, we like that part of Lamentations. <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, but what even is the book of Lamentations? Well, I will tell you. Yes. It's a book of lament. It's a book of poetry. And it's five poems, right? It's five chapters long. And each chapter is a poem of lament. What does that mean? <laughs> I have to keep looking up words, right? Um, well, in the Bible, lament is a crying out to God. And... Um, you know, it's, it's almost, almost like a complaint, okay? But it's way deeper, okay? Um, because there were times when Israel grumbled and complained to God, you know, like in Exodus uh, 16, uh, when it says they grumbled about the lack of food and water. And it says they tested God. And they accused God of bringing them out to the wilderness to kill them. And now their complaint is not deep, Right? It's a spiteful accusation, um, especially considering that he liberated them from being slaves in Egypt. And um, if you remember, they kind of, they take it too far, you know. And at one point they say, oh, if only we were back in Egypt, you know, then we could eat meat all the time. You know, and they seem to forget that they were slaves over there and that Egypt uh, killed all of their sons, you know. But they also seem to forget that it was their lament that got God's attention to liberate them from Egypt in the first place. In Exodus 3, 7, the Lord speaks to Moses from the burn, burning bush. And he says, I have seen the misery of my people in Egypt, and I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So the scriptures show a difference when Israel is crying out to God and when they are grumbling and testing him. And lament, it involves grief. And like I say, it, it's like a complaint, but it's so much deeper. And it's, it's a protest, okay? It's an appeal to God to come and be God in this mess. And lament is a prayer asking for God to act, right? In justice or in mercy. And often lament is a praise. Almost all of the lament psalms end with a praise or have a praise in it. Right? So the people cry out to God in grief. And they protest their circumstance. But they can't help but turn to him in confidence and brag on God and what he has done for them or what he has promised to do for them. 
So lament is a praise, and it's a prayer, and it's proof that the poet or the prophet or whoever is crying out has a relationship with God. Isn't that beautiful? Like, I love that. Yeah. Now, now we, as modern American Christians, Western Christians, I never know what to call us. But uh, I'm not sure that we are any good at lament. Okay, I think we're kind of afraid to cry out to God in protest. You know, like, I think we feel that it's disrespectful somehow. But the Bible is full of moments and poems of lament, okay? And yes, even in the New Testament, okay? In John 11, when Lazarus has died, both Mary and Martha say straight to Jesus' face, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now talk about a protest, okay? Talk about their faith, their confidence in the presence of the Christ. And talk about proof of their relationship. The Jews are so good at expressing lament. So, what is this book of Lamentations all about? Is it just random, sad poems? No. These lament poems are specific, and they're about the fall of Jerusalem to Babylon. And they cry out to God about the end of their kingdom, its total destruction, including the temple, and the exile of their people to Babylon. And traditionally, it's said that the prophet Jeremiah wrote these poems, but as with most writings in the Old Testament, there's no real proof of this. Our Bibles do place this book after Jeremiah's book. And that's a good place for it, because Jeremiah's book starts at the end of Judah's last, you know, good king. And it follows the steady decline of the rest of her kings to the exile and the total destruction of Jerusalem. And then we turn the page, right, and we get these five poems of lament. And the first four poems are written as acrostics, which means that the first word of each verse starts with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet in alphabetical order. Okay. Now, our English translations of these poems, they don't reflect that. <laughs> um, but we still have 22 verses, right? And the Hebrew alphabet has 22 letters. But our English translations limit us from enjoying the, like, the A to Z completeness of these writings. But still, knowing that the poets took the time to write them this way, it shows us that these poems aren't just knee-jerk reactions and complaints. They're extremely well thought out and planned poems. And each poem has kind of a theme. And the first one, the one that we'll read today, it shows the city of Jerusalem as a grieving widow and that her sin has forced God's hand to come against her. And the second poem is about Jerusalem's fall to her enemies and that it was God's justice that allowed it. And the third poem, it has 66 verses in it. Okay, it's three times longer than the other four. Um, but it still uses the alphabetical form. And instead of the poem being about the city, its voice is that of a single person. You know, maybe the poet, maybe a prophet, but it's a suffering servant type, like from Isaiah. 
But the voice of lament in this chapter also boasts in the Lord, right? This is that hope chapter that John read. And then um, chapter 4, it switches gears. And it's back to lamenting the destruction of the city and temple and the people. And here the people confess their sin. In verse 16, they say, Woe to us, for we have offended. For this, <clears throat> for this our heart is anguished. For these our eyes go dark. And the people ask God to bring them back to him. So chapter 3, that's the one about hope. But I think the end of chapter 4 is where you really see the maturity that takes place in lament. And then chapter 5 is the last one, and it is a prayer. And it doesn't use the alphabetical form like the other ones, but it does have 22 verses like the others. And this lament is a direct prayer to God. And it starts out, Remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Look and see our disgrace. And then the prayer is a list of just terrible things. But then comes the praise in verse 19. But you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. But the poem doesn't end there. It doesn't end with this praise or with hope. It ends with a question, and they pray, why do you forget us forever? Restore us to yourself, O Lord, unless you have utterly rejected us. That's how they end their prayer. That's how they end the book, with this sickening possibility that they have gone too far from God. And they pray their lament, and they leave it up to God to answer their question. You know, have we angered you beyond hope of restoration? So lament is a prayer and a praise, and it's proof that there's a relationship. So let's look at this first chapter. Now, remember, this is poetry, so it's not really about relaying information, right? It's painting a picture with words to get us to feel something. Okay, verse 1. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow has she become, she who was great among the nations. She who was a princess among the provinces has become a slave. Now, it fascinates me how many metaphors the poet will use to describe the people in this place, right? Because the poem talks about the city of Jerusalem, but it's talking about people. And it's talking about this nation that has a corporate identity. And he describes her as a widow, you know, and as like former royalty that has now been enslaved to another kingdom. I think it's awesome. Verse 2. She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. And uh, so we see that they're alone, you know. And that sounds really sad. It is sad to be alone. But in this case, you have to pause and say, like, wait, lovers plural? Like, what's going on here? How many lovers was she supposed to have? 
like zero. The Israelites, they entered into a covenant with the Lord, and he gave them very specific instructions on how not to be friends with the surrounding kingdoms. So while this verse at first sounds really sad, I mean, because they have been betrayed, it's actually a foreshadowing of admitting their wrongdoing. Verse 3, Judah has gone into exile because of affliction and hard servitude. She dwells now among the nations, but finds no resting place. Her pursuers have all overtaken her in the midst of her distress. The roads to Zion mourn, for none come to the festival. All her gates are desolate, her priests groan. Her virgins have been afflicted, and she herself suffers bitterly. They've lost their people, and they've lost their temple. Now, have they been faithfully celebrating their holy days before the exile? I'm not sure. But now, with no place and no temple and no people, they can't. Verse 5, her foes have become the head, her enemies prosper, because the Lord has afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. Her children have gone away, captives before the foe. And the poet reveals that the affliction, the destruction and exile has come from the Lord because they have sinned against him. From the daughter of Zion, all her majesty has departed. Her princes have become like deer that find no pasture. They fled without strength before the pursuer. Jerusalem remembers in the days of her affliction and wandering all the precious things that were hers from days of old. When her people fell into the hand of the foe and there was none to help her, her foes gloated over her. They mocked at her downfall. Jerusalem sinned grievously. Therefore, she became filthy. All who honored her despise her, for they have seen her nakedness. She herself groans and turns her face away. Her uncleanness was in her skirts. She took no thought of her future. Therefore, her fall is terrible. She has no comforter. O oh Lord, behold my affliction, for the enemy has triumphed. The enemy has stretched out his hands over all her precious things, for she has seen the nations enter her sanctuary, those whom you forbade to enter your congregation. And did you notice the poet admitting the people's sin again? Her precious things have been taken, right? Her princes, her people. And this is the story of Daniel, isn't it? When King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came and took the best of everything, including the best and the brightest people, to assimilate them into the kingdom. So she is devastated. In the next batch of verses, the poet really starts crying out to God. The lament gets really deep. Verse 11. All her people groan as they search for bread. They trade treasures for food to revive their strength. Look, O oh Lord, and see, for I am despised. Is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? Look and see if there is any sorrow like my sorrow, which was brought upon me 
which the Lord inflicted on the day of his fierce anger. From on high he sent fire, into my bones he made it descend. He spread a net, a trap for my feet. He turned me back. He has left me stunned, faint all the day long. My transgressions were bound into a yoke. By his hand, they were fastened together. They were set upon my neck. He caused my strength to fail. The Lord gave me into the hands of those whom I cannot withstand. The Lord rejected all my mighty men in my midst. He summoned an assembly against me to crush my young men. The Lord has trodden as in a winepress the virgin daughter of Judah. For these things I weep. My eyes flow with tears. For a comforter is far from me, one to revive my spirit. My children are desolate, for the enemy has prevailed. Zion stretches out her hands, but there is none to comfort her. The Lord has commanded against Jacob that his neighbors should be his foes. Jerusalem has become a filthy thing among them. Do you see what I mean about the deep lament? Is it nothing to you, he asks? Is there any sorrow like my sorrow? And though he's admitted their sin is what caused God to reject them, he still has no trouble pointing out that it's God who is crushing them. Like, yes, they have enemies, but they're being crushed by them because God is letting it happen. But in verse 18, the poet tells us that the Lord is just in his letting them be crushed. The Lord is in the right, for I have rebelled against his word. But hear all you peoples and see my suffering. My young women and my young men have gone into captivity. I called to my lovers, but they deceived me. My priests and elders perished in the city while they sought food to revive their strength. Now, it takes a certain amount of maturity to accept God's justice when you really want his mercy. You know, to say that the Lord is in the right while you watch the young being taken because they are useful as slaves, and you see the elderly and the vulnerable being left behind to starve and die because they are not valued. It's, it's quite a level of maturity. And now notice what the poet is going to say next, how he finishes the poem now that he's acknowledged God's right justice. Verse 20, Look, O Lord, for I am in distress. My stomach churns. My heart is wrung within me because I have been very rebellious. In the street, the sword bereaves. In the house, it is like death. They heard my groaning, yet there is no one to comfort me. All my enemies have heard of my trouble and they are glad that you have done it. You have brought the day you announced. Now let them be as I am. Ooh. Ooh. Let all their evil doing come before you and deal with them as you have dealt with me because of all my transgressions. 
for my groans are many and my heart is faint. Now, isn't that something? A gut-wrenching lament from A to Z. A crying out to God, look at our suffering. It is unbearable. We rebelled, and we deserve this justice. Now, how about doling out some of that justice of yours on our enemies? That is a bold prayer. It is a protest. It's an admission of guilt, and it is a cry for justice. And what I think is the best part of this whole thing is that when the Israelites first really meet God at Mount Sinai, right, they're scared. And who wouldn't be, okay? God shows up as a mountain-covering God storm. It's terrifying. And, you know, they say to Moses, like, how about you go talk to God? <laughs> we couldn't possibly, right? You go have the relationship with God, and then we will have a relationship with you. That's how they want their relationship with God to be. But look how that changes over all those centuries. And they can write and say these really honest and vulnerable things to their, their God. In the first century, the Jews started an annual day of mourning. It's called Tisha B'Av. And it's a day of fasting and reflection on um, like five of the major catastrophes that they have in their history. Uh, including the first one where they didn't trust God in the wilderness and they had to wander for 40 years. Yeah. And, um, and I think maybe over time they've added some more things to their list to mourn. They've had a very long history. But on this day in the morning, they read the book of Job, the whole thing. And in the evening, in the synagogue, they read the book of Lamentations. It is a whole liturgy of lament. That's amazing. A people who didn't want to face God and have relationship with him, they now say real and vulnerable things to him. Not just the prophet, not just a poet, but the whole people. I think that is awesome. Lament is relationship. But what about the church? You knew I was going to ask, right? Do we lament? I think, you know, as individuals, sure, you know, we might pour out our grieving to God from time to time, you know, especially when we lose a loved one, when we're going through a really tough time. But I think sometimes we stop ourselves. You know, I've heard a ton of folks start in on a deep moment of grief. They start sharing it, and then they stop, right, as though it's rude to say it. And then they always say something like, well, I know that there's people out there who have it worse than I do. Of course there are, and there always will be. But we need to learn to follow our lament all the way through. Like, do you think that King David, while lamenting the death of his son, like suddenly stopped and said, you know, I don't know what I'm whining about. I'm the king. The peasants have it so much worse than me. 
So as individuals, we may or may not be very good at lament. But as the church, the corporate body of Christ, I think we might be terrible at it. Especially here in America. I have an example. Most of you probably know I grew up Lutheran, right? And, um, you know, there's different flavors of Lutherans out there. Uh, ours was the really conservative, strict one. <laughs> Um, and after 9-11 happened, um, a couple months after that, there was this inter-religious prayer event that they had at Yankee Stadium. And um, a Lutheran pastor, I don't know if it was one of the local ones or if it was like the president of the synod, he, um, he participated and he helped to lead it with other leaders of the city. And I thought that was pretty cool. That sounds, sounds like a good thing. But would you believe that there were some folks that thought it was wrong that he did that. And they got really mad. And they thought he should be fired for joining in a night of prayer to God with other people like Catholics and Jews. Isn't that something? I think that is the kind of attitude we get when we are out of touch with lament. I think our pride starts running our hearts. I think a more recent example of this is how the church reacted to COVID and the shutdown. You know, we saw a lot of division and a lot of finger pointing. And you know, we're on year three of this plague and the division and all of that, it hasn't been miraculously fixed. Okay, I think the wounds are still there. I think maybe we've just gotten good at ignoring them. But I don't think lament happens immediately. Okay. Complaints, yes. Complaints happen immediately. Um, but I think mature lament, I think there has to be some time taken to process what you've been through. I don't think the book of Lamentations was written two weeks after Jerusalem fell. But I do worry that we, the church, have lost touch with lament. And I worry that we listen more to our culture than we do to the scriptures. And we have a culture that tells us real men don't cry. You know, and, and you know what? Like, I wrote that, and I thought, you know, I think that's pretty outdated. Does anyone still say that? But you know what? I also, I listened to that Mars Hill podcast this year. And, yeah, that garbage is still alive and well. And we have a culture that thinks three days is a generous amount of time off for bereavement. It's as though once they're in the ground, everything's fine. You've gotten your closure. I'll see you back at work on Monday. And we listen to a culture that tells us being vulnerable is weak. So we become a church that doesn't cry out to God anymore because it's too emotional. Or maybe it's disrespectful. We can't pray prayers of protest. Right? We can't appeal to God out of our frustration. Like, really? Like, have, have you read more than one psalm? There's tons of them. Even Jesus lamented in the garden. Okay, he wept hard. And he appealed to God to come change his circumstances. Now, does anyone want to accuse Jesus of being too emotional or weak? 
No, we better don't. Lament is a big deal. And honestly, like, I can't think of a better prayer, a better praise, or a better hope, okay, than to confess our sins and appeal to God to act, you know, to show him our faith, our confidence in his mercy and in his justice, and to cry out to him, Lord, come and be God in this mess. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, I said that bad, didn't I? Oh, let's pray. Let's pray. <laughs> Lord, we thank you for your word. And we are so grateful that we can cry out to you. Will you soften and mature our hearts to give up our pride so that we can cry out and ask you to come be God in this mess? In your name, Jesus, amen.